Hello, everyone. Welcome to Seek, Go, Create. This is your host, Tim Winders. This is where we redefine success in leadership, business, and in ministry. Today, I've got a great conversation on leadership. I have someone who has been the leader, the CEO of uh, an organization in healthcare, a large organization we're going to discuss later, and we're going to have a great conversation about leadership, discuss his book, a lot of other things, played college baseball and other things like that. So stick around. Before I get to his introduction, though, let me just remind you of something for those listening in. When you listen to the episodes that we have here at Seek Go Create, I know that often we will recommend books, we'll recommend resources, we'll recommend other episodes and podcasts and things like that. And sometimes if you're driving and listening, it can be difficult to take notes, or at least I highly recommend you do not take notes while you're driving. But what we have is on our website, seekgocreate.com, we have extensive notes for each episode that you can go back to, go back to later or link while you're uh, listening in or watching, depending on where you are consuming. And we have an outline form where we go over all of the topics we discuss. If anything is mentioned, we've got a link to it. If there's a book or anything like that we reference, there are typically links to that. So make sure you go check out the episode pages of SeekGoCreate.com. Uh, we spend a lot of time on that. We get a lot of great feedback, and we think it's a valuable resource for you, the listener. So uh, make sure you go check it out at SeekGoCreate.com. Today, got Ben Breyer as our guest. He's the former CEO and a member of the board of directors of Kindred Healthcare, very large organization in the healthcare industry. Positions he held from March 2015 to December 2021, up until just recently. He serves on the board for the Federation of American Hospitals, is a member of the Wall Street Journal CEO Council, and a founding member and chairman of the board of Louisville Healthcare CEO Council. He also is the author of the leadership book that we will be discussing, Intentional Disruption. He also has about five other paragraphs that I could read from his bio, but we won't take the time to do that now. Ben, welcome to Seat Go Create. Glad to have you here. Tim, thank you. It's good to be here with you and your guests. Yeah, glad glad you're here. Ben, my first question that I ask, it's kind of my, if we're out and about and I meet you and we're talking, I don't know if it's a business setting, I don't know if it's on a plane or whatever, and we're just chit-chatting, and I just say something like, Ben, what do you do? What's the answer you typically give people when they ask you what you do? Well, I'd like to tell you that I'm a I'm a great uh, deep sea fisherman, but that wouldn't be the truth uh, based on my, uh, my 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 track record of uh, not bringing fish in the boat. But I would try with that. Uh, so I tell you the real story, which is uh, you know I think if you want to know about me, I'm a I'm a guy who uh, has really grown up sort of as a blue-collar operator of businesses, primarily in my space in the healthcare world. Uh, I've been and done at all different levels all kinds of things from pushing gurneys and meals to being the CEO of a publicly traded Fortune 500 company. And I guess in my specialty re is managing companies with scale, uh, large geographic disbursement of lots of different sites of service, uh, the complexities of managing all that, I think at Kindred at our peak, we were, I don't know, just under about 150,000 teammates, which made us uh, the 60th largest, I think, non-government employer in the country. So, you know, an operator of businesses who um, who, who really works at scale in healthcare. Hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot that I liked in there. But there's one thing, and I mentioned to you right before we click record, uh, we're going to discuss your book later in the conversation. And I just finish reading that. And I, one of the things when I do research, I jump over to LinkedIn and kind of snoop around a little bit. And I noticed that in the role you were in, it is just recently ended, I think the end of last year, depending on when people are listening in. And so, and so you sort of have the title now of former CEO. Would that be correct? That would be correct. Yes. I am, uh, I am currently, as we speak, uh, unemployed and semi-retired which is an interesting place to be after after 30 years of, uh, of working pretty hard. Well, I, I guess I wanted to kind of go into, and one of the things you talk about in your book that we'll address later, it's not really a how-to or technical leadership book. It's more about emotion. So I want, to, I want to tap into a little bit of emotion with you right here as we're getting started. When someone is like CEO, head of an organization for so long, and then they're not, 
sometimes there can be a little bit of an identity issue or anything like that. So this is not like deep psychological, but I'm a coach, so I ask questions like this. How's Ben doing being a former CEO? <laughs> Great question, no, and one that I've, you know, I've been asked a lot over the last, what, two and a half months now it's only been uh the answer is uh it's an evolving process for me for sure i have not sure i figured out exactly how ben is doing but you know i'll say this first just for some perspective uh we closed on the sale of kindred to a large strategic uh, uh healthcare company called lifepoint out of nashville uh which is also backed by a big private equity uh, firm uh, apollo on december 23rd i think the day before christmas eve and the contracts were finalized him at noon on the 23rd. And all of the wires that have to move around, you know, were finalized at 1230 on that day. And at one o'clock, I walked out of the office with no real responsibilities left uh, in my job as CEO. And it was quite a uh, sort of out-of-body experience. Uh, I went right into the holiday season, which was sort of nice because everybody was sort of in the holiday season. So I wasn't sure I missed a whole lot that week. But when everybody came back to work uh, that first week of January and I wasn't working and my emails stopped coming in and my Zoom calls really sort of stopped, the best way I can describe it, Tim, is sort of imagine driving in your car, right, at 100 miles an hour and the brakes stop really fast, but you keep going uh, right through the window. And really those first couple of weeks were, you know, the best word I could use, disconcerted, uh, a little bit anxious, uh, this feeling of uh, almost – I had accomplished really a goal and dream of my life, which was to reconfigure and reposition our company so that somebody would actually find value and want to buy it and, and, and get a great price and do great things for our teammates, and shareholders, et cetera. And I should have been just sort of sitting around going, this is great. This is the best thing that's ever happened. And instead it was very much, whoa, what just happened? What am I going to do now? How am I going to find an effective way to contribute to not just business, but society and my family? Being around the house, I have three teenage uh, daughters, so it's very busy here. My wife is a whirling dervish of busyness. And just trying to figure out all that was going to sort of take place has taken, obviously, a little while to get used to. I've been blessed to some regards, Tim, that the book that I wrote that you mentioned, and hopefully we'll talk about a little bit later, really came out right sort of the week or two after. I couldn't – I've almost timed it better. And so at least from a from a staying in the in the flow of things, that's kept me actually quite busy. I've uh, been doing a lot of talking and a lot of writing and a lot of thinking about it. So, you know, I haven't really had a chance to have too much idle hands. But certainly I would say feeling more anxious than I would have thought I would have felt and really uh, to grips with what happened and with what I'll ultimately wind up doing next. Yeah, I, I I love this conversation because I know we have a lot of listeners. Myself, as I've been in this position, I work with clients, and so many times our identity gets wrapped up. You mentioned earlier that you've, you're kind of a blue-collar operator. I don't care if we're talking about someone who might be, you know, I'm sitting here in the RV park right now, and someone just wheeled in in a golf cart to clean up where a big motorhome just left. Uh, that that's the type of work they do, or if they're the CEO of an organization with 100,000 plus people, that when that's what they do every day, but then they step away from it, there can be some stuff that goes on inside us like, huh, what do I do now? Uh, this is kind of an interesting question. Have you slept in at all? Have you done anything like personal habit that you go, huh, or are you like still getting up, getting ready and kind of prepping to do something. What's your like? Because I can tell you're probably a disciplined guy. I know you got a background as an athlete and all that. I'm always curious about things like that. What are some personal things that you might be noticing different about the way you function and operate? Yeah. So, so some different and some the same. So, so the first, the first uh, answer to your question is uh, uh, no. I have not really slept in. What happens <laughs> in my house? Uh, as I mentioned with three teenage daughters, is they get up very early in the morning to go to school. Usually around six fifteen, six thirty. And we have this sort of whirling buzz of activity in our house between about 6.30 and 7 o'clock in the morning where the kids are making and we're talking about what's ahead of them in their day. They usually are a little bit more grumpy than I'd like them to be. But nonetheless, that may be with really busy kids and overscheduled families, the only 30 minutes that I grab from them all day until they come back from school and the practice field and whatever it is where we might have you know, a family sort of late night dinner sitting around the, you know, the island in our kitchen, not even sort of in a formal, in a formal way. So I've been very um, specific, actually, in my own sort of schedule to make sure that 
you know, I want to get up and I want to see my kids. And that's one of the things that, you know, I missed a little bit uh, over the last certainly 10 years of being the CEO of a big organization. So I've been very disciplined about that. That really hasn't changed. What I would say has changed is, is that once that noise quiets down and 7 o'clock or 7.15 comes around, I don't really have an office to have to go to or meetings to have to go to. And I've really tried over the last number of years to really think and take care of my own personal fitness and my own personal sort of mental health. I mean, COVID, I think for all of us that were, you know, more at home than probably we ever were. And for me, it got me off the road. Uh, one of the really nice things I'd say, Tim, in my schedule has been, I've really been very structured about fitness, workout regimen, eating a good breakfast, being healthy, reading the papers, reading the things that I, you know, haven't had a chance to read over the years. And that really takes up a lot of my mid morning. And it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity uh, that I really have never had to just sort of, you know, take a deep breath, you know, be a little bit meditative on, on where life is and where things are going. And uh, I'm really enjoying, I would say, that aspect of the change. I think there's a lot of power in that. And I think not even just your role, but with what's happened the last few years, I think a lot of people have reevaluated their schedule and maybe it was shifted in a bad way. I know a lot of people with kids at home, no schools and, you know, things like that. It was very challenging. I'm not making light of it, but it did allow for all of us to say, what's important? What would I really like to do? You know, I don't have to maybe commute 15, 30 minutes an hour, you know, a day. So what can I do with that time? So I, I like that. That's very good. You know, one of the things that I really wanted us to discuss, because it's it's rare that I have someone who's got this level of experience and background in what we call our healthcare industry. And I know I want to dive into leadership and, and discuss some things that you've recently written about, but I would be a little bit remiss if I didn't ask a few questions just about the state of what we call the healthcare industry. And I want to preface this to say, at times, I have a a fairly negative attitude about the healthcare world. It is, it is a very, and I'm a business guy. I love business and all, but I look at what's going on in that industry and I go, boy, there's a lot of tough stuff going on. And, and anyway, and I could share a little bit about some personal family situations and all that kind of stuff, but let's go big picture first, like macro and then healthcare and your perspective from where you sit and all, because I know I feel very confident your hands are not going to be out of that industry. You're probably going to be around it. So talk about what you see from the seat you've had, from where you are now, just about the state of the healthcare world. Well, as you said, it, it, it's, you know, we, we could spend just, you know, we could spend all day, right, talking about the various different intricacies of healthcare. But let me, let me try, Tim, for you and for the audience, maybe to, to go up to 30,000 feet and put a little bit of a sort of macro spin on what I see and some of the, some of the trends that I think are affecting you and a lot of the consumers of healthcare out there in the world. And then we can dive into, you know, into, into, into more of the details, maybe about the future. But, you know, from a macro perspective, there are, there are, there are three or four, I think, really specific things that in 2022, most consumers uh, probably to the tune of some of the comments, Tim, that you made are, are thinking about in healthcare. Number one, healthcare is a very, very complex industry. It is not easily understood by most who utilize it, by most who provide care in it, and by most who pay for that care. There are so many different verticals of the way payment works, the way reimbursement works, what services and what access we are allowed to have. And a lot of that is just 60 years since Medicare was created, this amalgamation of all these different policies and structures around how healthcare is provided in this country. So we have to acknowledge, first of all, that it's a really, really complex industry. And that in and of itself can make it very frustrating for the consumer. Number one. Number two, COVID, I think, really taught us some very hard, basic lessons that maybe we knew, maybe we knew and we didn't want to talk about. Maybe we didn't know when we learned about, and that is that clearly there are enormous socioeconomic disparities in the way healthcare is provided. And COVID really taught us that. If you looked at who was getting sick, how they were getting cared for, who was dying, where it was happening, you could get a very quick sense of the disparities around getting really good care in the country and who's not getting really good health care in this country. And that was 
that was color-based, that was urban versus rural-based, that was reimbursement-based. There were a lot of things really, I think, caught the attention of the American public around the, 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 the social discrepancies, if you will, in the way healthcare is provided. That in and of itself creates a lot of angst. And then I would add a third component to that, Tim, which is, I guess what I would call this, this, uh, this silver wave uh, coming over America today. If you have spent any time studying the baby boom population in America, right, so those are people who are 65 or older, and you've looked at those demographic trends, you know it doesn't take you very long to know that about 11,000 uh, U.S. citizens, Medicare beneficiaries, are becoming Medicare eligible every day, right? The baby boom population is growing and growing and getting older and living longer and staying around longer. And if you think about the utilizers of healthcare in our country, it's really not the folks that are in the 20 to 60 range. Those are the sort of walkie, healthy, for the most part, people that are moving around. It's really as you age in place and as you get older, uh, you start to access and utilize the healthcare system more. And if you imagine that there's about 50 or 55 million Medicare beneficiaries today, but that in as, rec- as, as soon as I think the next 10 years, that number is going to go to something like 75 million. You start to think about how much resource is going to be required to care for these folks, our parents, our grandparents, you know, this incredible generation that's going to be using and needing more and more and more health care. Well, where does the money come from? Who pays for it? How much do you get? Where do you get it? How do you get it? Those are the really at its core, Tim, the hard questions that all of us that are in healthcare are trying to figure out today. So you, you take those three sort of stacks. And I'm not sure I answered the question, but I hope that I at least gave you a sense of, yeah, I I understand why people view the system the way they do. And men and women like me who are in our position of trying to navigate this and trying to make things better for the consumer are working hard every day to try and find paths forward to do that. And we can talk more about what those may or may not be. But that's that's really the system that we're dealing with today and why. Yeah. And just I mean, you go ahead and wrap in the emotion of the physical health around the items you mentioned complexity uh you know the disparity and also the silver issue i'm i'm technically a tail end of the uh baby boom generation i was uh, i'm 58 years old now born in 63 so i'm depending on where you look at i'm the end of it and then uh you know kind of from a personal standpoint right when covid hit we found out my father was already in advanced stages of Alzheimer's or, you know, dementia and made it very challenging to how to deal with it during early COVID. And then my wife's mother has is dealing with quite a few things, too. And uh, so so there's one thing I want to ask, and this is where I, I hope, boy, I hope this doesn't come across cynical, but I want to ask it because it's something when I look at anything, when I see advertisements and things like that, I just go, it seems like the pharmaceutical industry is is a blessing and a curse at the same time within healthcare. Like they are really, really helpful that they are providing a lot of value and, and items that can help this industry. And then at the same time, I look at it and go, man, I don't wish, I wish they weren't ever. And I'm a business guy. I'm a free market capitalist guy. I love that they can advertise, but I'm sitting here on YouTube going, you know, everything they're saying, I feel like I have that. <laughs> I probably need that, and I'm not. I'm not a big medicine guy. So, talk to me briefly, and I and I know I may be asking you some questions that in the in the role you're in could be tough. But where does the pharmaceutical industry, this big, huge, massive industry, fit within this even bigger industry, which is healthcare? Well, you know, I think I think you laid it out well. There are there are there are great great things I think that have been created and have have come from. Uh, the research and development and the ultimate deployment of incredible medicines and drugs in our country that are helping people live better lives and longer lives. And yet there is also an overextension of profits that are being generated off those drugs, marketing that's driving people towards, I think, in this country, wanting to become overutilizers of prescription medicines, uh, whether it's whether it's whether it's prescription pain medicine, which we know is 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 arguably the biggest 
ill that our country faces today. I'm living here in, you know, middle America where, where, where Oxycontin and things of that nature are, are, are just a, a an absolute devast, having a devastating effect on, on particularly the rural and poorer populations. There is this, there is this incredible mix between the good and the bad of what's happening. You know, I think, Tim, I mean, let's, let's, let's just talk about the COVID vaccine because that's on everybody's mind, right? I mean, that's a, and let's, let's take, pick, pick a company, pick five, let's pick Moderna for the sake of picking it. Moderna had never developed a pharmaceutical or a drug that they had deployed to the marketplace prior to their deployment, the deployment of the COVID vaccine. And they went and were doing all of this, uh, uh, mRNA research. They were doing this, uh, this, this drug development with genealogy in a way that hadn't been done before. And COVID came and within what, I don't know, less than a year, uh, you had a, a, a Moderna drug that was deployed, a COVID vaccine that was deployed. And we can argue over its efficacy and I don't want to get into the entire, into the entire COVID thing. But, but look, I mean, from my own perspective, uh, this vaccine saved lives, saved a lot of lives. Uh, I think people who got sick maybe didn't die. People who, who, who didn't get sick were protected, whatever it was. And they spent billions and billions of dollars to develop this vaccine on the one hand. And really, I think we could, I mean, it's impossible to predict how many millions of lives ultimately did it save. Now, look at their stock price today. Look at the CEO's compensation. Look at their profitability. They are making hundreds of billions of dollars. The CEO, I think, just got a $275 million compensation package for all the work that they did. And on the one hand, you can be sort of disgusted by all that. While on the other hand, you can say, but what an incredible, you know, historic effort this drug company made. And you can use that as an example for a cholesterol drug and for a heart medication drug and for all these things that we have out there. I don't know what the right answer is. We have to be able to fund and push research and development we think and know that medications and the right sort of prescription drugs can be incredibly helpful towards helping people live better lives. And yet they push them down our throats. They are enormously profitable. And it is very easy to understand why the consumer would be cynical about what they did. Yeah. And, and I think the bigger issue, and this is we're going to move off of the healthcare conversation, maybe with this question. I, I, one of the things that concerns me maybe at the age I'm at, I think you're a few years younger than me, maybe more than a few years younger than me. But, uh, but I look oh, at. I won't comment on that too. No comment. No comment. Okay. Um, I look at the level of trust that society groups people have with our, what I call our important, uh, cultural entities, government, uh, I think healthcare is in that, you know, big business, uh, this, the markets, you know, the, the people that control our money, the feds, different things like that. And I think one of the concerns that I have, and I see it creeping in with me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to help me on this as well as the listener. I start questioning and having less trust in what we can call you know, big health care, big government. I'm not going to ask you to address government. We may talk leadership in just a moment on that. But but help me, help the listener with all the experience you've had with all the great people that are working hard every day out in this industry to, uh, you know, to, to provide health care and things for people. Give us just, I'm kind of giving you an open mic here to instill in us why we should have some trust and confidence in that industry for those that might be because of social media stuff or junk or misinformation, whatever, that might not be having confidence in the healthcare world. Help us out. Yeah, I mean, look, it's easy to lose confidence in the world we live in today. You just described it yourself in social media and disinformation and 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 in all of that plays a role. And in addition to some of my earlier comments, Tim, being involved in such a complex uh, system as U.S. healthcare delivery is, that just causes the consumer to want to be sort of cynical in and of itself. But I, I, I fall back on this. And again, I don't, I don't want to use COVID too much, but just, just cause it's in such our recent memory. And I think it's important. Every time a consumer starts to think about a lack of trust in the healthcare system, I want them to think about what our physicians and our nurses and our therapists and our and our nurse aides and our CNAs and all of the people who went to the hospital in the middle of this pandemic, who who risked their lives every single day 
before a vaccine was created, before they knew if they were going to be able to stay safe, they went in and risked them and their families' lives to care for you and me and the individual consumer in this country. And COVID is an example of that, Tim, but I see it every single day in our healthcare delivery system. The people who work in our healthcare delivery system are compassionate, uh, are, 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 are true believers in the, in, in the, in, in the important embrace of the human touch on another human touch in terms of the healing power of all of that. They work tireless hours. They don't get paid near enough for the jobs that they do. And if you can't have respect and trust and confidence that people that are working like that for you and for me are really for the most part in it for our good, for our best. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. It doesn't mean that mistakes aren't made. It doesn't mean that on a long, tired day, they don't overlook something. All of those things happen in all of our aspects of our life. But I go back to the human element, Tim, is really where I would get your your listeners to sort of think about. Think about every experience they've had. Maybe you had a bad, you know, uh, customer service experience with a person at the front desk who was a little rough and tough and gruff on you. I've had those myself. But for the most part, think about the experiences you've had with your physicians and your clinicians and how hard they've worked to try and heal you and make you feel better. And at the end of the day, that's what I draw back on. I think these men and women are doing their best. And I think that Americans should have confidence that we we not only have a good health care system and an honest health care system, but arguably the best in the world. Yeah. And and I appreciate you doing that. I, I, I do want to give honor to especially the frontline folks with all that's gone on. Any crystal ball predictions from where you sit? I mean, things we could look for with uh, healthcare, medicine, or anything like that over the next five, ten years that, um, that, that might be intriguing or interesting to us? I'll say two things, and I'm not sure they're revolutionary, but they're, they're actively happening, and I think they're going to continue to happen. I think this whole idea about delivering more healthcare to our home is going to continue to take on this very, very rapid evolution. That is through the use of technology and all these new technologies that are being created. We talk a lot in my space about the digitization of healthcare. Where can we do things more digitally to get people cared for where they want to be in a lower cost setting? You know, our, our game is the most expensive area of healthcare is when you wind up in a hospital. If you go to an emergency room or you wind up in an acute care setting, that's when it costs the system the most. So everything we do to try and not only do, by the way, what the consumer wants, which is to not go in and want to be cared for at home, to age in place, to understand that wellness and nutrition and drug medication adherence and having nurses and therapists come to your home and telemedicine where we can have you talk to a doctor from your from your RV in uh, in southern Utah Tim, where 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 you can get the kind of care that you need to get without actually having to access other aspects of the system not only is going to prove to be incredibly cost efficient but it's going to prove to be very consumer friendly i'd keep my eye on all of those different areas i think that's where healthcare is going the most yeah, I think that's good to know. In fact, just yesterday, uh, my, my wife's mother is in the Atlanta market and she had someone, she's probably in a position that she needs assisted living. She's pretty adamant that she doesn't want it, which is a whole nother issue. And, uh, my wife actually, there were two people from the medical, I'll call it space that were in and out of her apartment yesterday. And my wife has a camera and talks to her on the phone and all this kind of stuff. So I, I like that. And I actually seems as if the experience with COVID that kind of isolated some people coming into offices may have sped that up, which is very good. Now I want to shift to intentional disruption, which when I began reading this book, I was like going, what an interesting space that he's in. He's in this medical world, which at times seems very progressive and advanced, and then at times seems slow and stodgy and not very fast moving. Where did intentional disruption, and we'll talk specifically about the book in just a moment, but that's your title, so just so the listener knows, Intentional Disruption is the book that Ben wrote. Where does that fit in? In medical, because I haven't seen a lot of disruption over my, even I guess there has been, but uh, intentional disruption. Tell me about that. Well, I think the first the first thing is, Tim, I, I think there's been a lot of disruption in healthcare. I think if you really think back over the last 20, 30, 40 years, 
you know, I could go give you a list of, you know, 500 different sort of, sort of things that have happened that have changed the way we provide care, even some of the conversations we were, we were having already. Uh, it's there. And particularly, you know, from, from, from my perspective, Tim, where intentional disruption came from is really this incredible intersection between what I'd been doing, uh, for the last 10, 15, 20 years, the industry that I was in in healthcare. And some of the ways that I've lived my life and the way that I grew up and some of the, some of the actions I took to get from, you know, being a kid in Miami to, to winding up, you know, running a, you know, a publicly traded Fortune 500 company when I was, what, 43 years old or something like that. And, and, and what's, what's, what's interesting about the job that I had for so many years was yes, our product was healthcare. Uh, we were delivering healthcare to the consumer, but the business was also the business. And we had enormous forces of both evil and good against us dealing with capital markets, dealing with public shareholders, dealing with private equity, dealing with hostile actors that wanted to see us do things in a different way than what we and our board may have wanted us to do. And what intentional disruption really is the story of is the way that I sort of navigated through both my life and my career at Kindred to try and take the normal disruptions that all of us feel in our life, Tim, when we wake up every day, whether we read our Twitter feed or we read Facebook or we see what's going to happen in the news. We obviously all see what's happening uh, in Ukraine and, 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 and with the various situations. COVID is another, is another great example. How do we, how do we, how do we live our life in an effective way? And for me, what I learned and what I try and tell the, in the book through a stories of, of a number of vignettes along my life and, and my career, is that for me, when I went on offense, you know, when I just didn't sit back on defense and kind of let the world just kind of beat me up, when I tried to navigate my way through, sometimes which were more difficult decisions than I might have had to make if I just had sat back, that seemed to make me feel better about the tactics that I was taking. And for the most part, most of the successes I've had, not just in my career, but in my life, have come from this idea of intentional disruption. Yeah, the thing I guess is interesting. I don't think anybody's going to argue about disruption, uh, but the thing when you when you marry that word intentional disruption to it, or I, I kept as I was reading the book, I kept inserting the word control because my personality. I kind of get the feeling your personality might be a little bit like this also. Kind of enjoys to ha having as much control over our world, our space, our environment as we can. And and I'm not one. I'm I've been working this muscle more and more, practicing uh, not con not not allowing control to be a big deal for me. But but so when you marry those two words together, intentional disruption. Um, I, I guess this was what I was thinking about. I think some people get uncomfortable with disruption. Period. And then also they get confused thinking that they can be intentional or control that disruption. In other words, they have trouble bringing those two together. And I think you do a great job of it, but I want to hear you verbally talk about how to do that. Because as I read through, there were a lot of situations where you were facing disruption that truly was a little bit outside of your control, but you were controlling parts of it. Talk a little bit about that. What, what is it like when you're really out of control? We're in a chaotic world. No one's going to intent, be intentional about everything around them, I don't think. So talk a little bit about that. Oh, I mean, that's right. And, and, and sometimes I think the hard part is recognizing just to what you said, Tim, is to say, maybe this isn't one of those times that I'm supposed to go for it. Maybe this isn't one of those times that I need to have all the control. Maybe this is one of those times when I should let you know, the world just continue to move forward. It's, it is, it is the hardest part of recognizing a strategy like intentional disruption for what it is, which is when am I supposed to use it and when am I not? I would say, look, let me, let me, let me try and take a step back if I could about, about, about the specific strategy. The, the, the book itself, I mean, I've sort of described it to many. It's, it's, it's as much like a survival guide for me as, as, as it is a, a strategic sort of business book. It, it, it goes into a lot of different stories. Uh, not just about playing offense and about being strategic, but about d doing the things that matter, like being focused on what your core values are, you know, the decisions that you make. So when you ask the question, how do you decide when to do this or when to do that? I always sort of kind of come back to try and figure out what is my true north? What matters to me the most? What are the core values I have? How do I figure out how to make sure that I stay and prescribe to those? And sometimes that means going on offense. And sometimes it means that, that, that it doesn't. And I think, 
if if I've told the story right, what I've really tried to get the reader to understand are that there are some like core foundational things that I think all of us who are trying to be successful in life, whether it's in business or in our own personal lives or other things, that that there are some of the softer side of things that are just as equally as important as having IQ and financial acumen and understanding how the public markets work. And those are ideas, Tim, like resiliency, which I think is a word that in 2022 we need we need even more of. Those are words like empathy, uh, feeling what others feel and recognizing that you're not the only person in the room in terms of how you're feeling about things. I think we could all use more transparency in the world, right? And, and, and really talking about the issues and maybe with a little vulnerability uh, mixed in with that. And at the end of the day, I think the most of what intentional disruption is trying to describe is that you as an individual to be successful, whether it's my kids or whether it's your listeners or whether it's me or you, you got to have a willingness in this world to be accountable. Now, that may not mean that you want to go take offensive action. You may want to just watch the world go around, but at least be accountable for what those decisions are. And and if I've, if I've told the stories right, hopefully those are some of the key elements that come out from the reader in terms of how I think about the world. Yeah, you kind of – and I enjoyed how you wove in – your uh, your baseball career going back to I think when you were ten years old and some decisions you had to make all the way up through your collegiate career and then and then I think you did a great job of covering when your you know baseball career ended which uh, every athlete sometimes even executives and leaders have a have a career that ends um, but but I think the thing that I wrote down I actually wrote this down earlier but you you brought up you tied in a lot of your baseball mm-hmm. career with leadership. And I think the question I want to ask, I'm going to let the reader go check the book out and see how you tied in baseball and all, but I wanted to ask your perspective of seeing other examples for people that, listen, not everybody played team sports. Not everyone, you know, did sat behind the, the, the home plate like you did as a catcher. So in your world that you've been in, where have you seen some other people come out of cool environments outside of team sports that have really, really served them well in leadership? I mean, is that, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. You could probably handle a question like that. Just some examples outside of team sports, because sometimes when we start talking about team sports, people kind of check out. They go, yeah, I didn't play team sports. I did ballet or something. Our daughter did ballet. But uh, any examples that you could think of when I bring that up? Well, I, I, yes, and I'll, I'll get to some specifically. Look, leadership. And what I try and say about leadership, whether you played sports or not, leadership and and being effective around leading in an organization, it is a team sport. Now, whether you want to describe it as a sport or not, and we get, you know, people get fogged out about sports, it it is a collaborative effort. And in order to be effective to, to some of the comments I made earlier, you know, I mean, there's very few people in the world that just have sort of dictatorial powers that can just go tell you, go do this, and you go do this, and you go do that. This doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work in 2022. It doesn't work in global affairs, and it doesn't work in a business, and it doesn't work, my guess is, in everybody's individual household. You have to work together collaboratively as a team. And so you ask for examples. I mean, if you didn't play sports, which a lot of people didn't, were you in your school play? And if you were in your school play, what did you do with that cast and the ensemble? And did you work on the set? Did you work on design? Did you do the music? Did you do what did you do to fit in on that team? And what was your important role? And how did you collaborate with the rest of that ensemble to make sure that you delivered a great performance? Were you on the debate team where, yes, you had your own responsibilities, but you needed to collectively have others sort of working with you and come with you along along the way? Were you working for a club or were you raising money for a charity or did you work for your church or synagogue or did you there it doesn't have to be a sport. Sport is a is a metaphor for collaboration, collectivity, being a part of a team, and and ultimately recognizing that that only through empathy and only through vulnerability and only through this collective transparency of collaboration, I think can you be successful. Tim, my best example is in my own household. I mean, you know, try try being the only guy with with three teenage daughters and a wife who 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 are teaming up on you almost every day. You you you've got to effectively learn how to find your role and what it is to be collaborative to 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 be able to not just lead as a father has to do sometimes, but to be a part of the team. And and so I think everybody, all of your listeners, when they go back and think about where have they really made 
team's work and 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 and, and things that they've done in their life, they'll, they'll all recognize whether it's sports or something else. There's, this is a metaphor for life that I think works. Yeah, and and I, I could tell you that myself and possibly some listeners might be more impressed with the role you have in your household than running a Fortune 500 company with, sure. with all that, and 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 rightly so, probably. So, uh, you know, one of the things we discuss here, Ben, is we use this term. We talk about defining success. We also talk about redefining success. How should leaders? define success you've gone through a lot and you laid a lot of it out of a lot of things within your book and all that but how how should a leader define success what's some metrics or just ways they should look at it well you know i i talked earlier about about being true to your core values and so i think every leader first of all has to assess not only are what his or her core values are uh, but what the business that they are running core values are. And the first thing is to try and get some alignment between those two things. I think if you don't have alignment between what your individual core values are in the business you're either building or trying to run, that's going to lead to some very uncomfortable, you know, things. And by the way, it doesn't mean that everybody's altruistic and perfect in what they do. Some people just want to go figure out how to make a lot of money and they go find a job that helps them do that. Some people want to do this. Some people want to want to find in the middle. But I do think Core values is something that I fall back on. Once, Tim, I think that you have some alignment on core values, you know, you have to define success the way, the way you feel comfortable with it and also the way it's, and to some degree, if you have shareholders or stakeholders or a board, the way that they've prescribed, you know, for you to be successful. So in my case at Kindred, um, I'll try and give you an example of how we define success. Maybe that might be a little bit different than what you might otherwise have thought about. So, in the last year that I was at Kindred, I think we had 3 million patients go through our door over the course of the year. 3 million different consumers accessed and utilized healthcare for us. And so I defined success not from what was the economic value that was derived from that, not from what was the share price or the value, although, you know, I have to say those things were ultimately important for the people that were investing in a part of our business. I defined success by saying, did the consumer of healthcare that came into one of our hospitals or one of our rehab facilities, did they have a good experience where they treated the right way and did ultimately their outcome improve to where they got better and went home? And we had lots of metrics and lots of ways in which we tracked that. And did we do it in a compliant, qualitative manner? We had a, we had a, 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 a mission statement at Kindred around hope, healing and recovery. And every day I came home and I said, are we doing our level best? Am I deploying capital? both human and financial, so that I am giving our caregivers the best opportunity to be providing hope and healing and recovery for those that we are caring for. And that's how I define success. And whatever else happened, uh, I could sort of live with myself if we were doing that job really, really well. I also wanted to make sure as a business leader that my teammates, the people that worked for me, that worked with me, that they and their families and the dependents that they had that we were doing as right by them as was economically viable for us to be able to, to do, understanding the responsibility of what it means to work for an organization, have loyalty for an organization, and make sure that we were doing our level best for them. And that the last thing was that, you know, we were probably in, I don't know, 150 different communities, in big cities, small cities. Were we giving back in some way in those communities towards some of the social disparities and discrepancies that existed along the way? You know, everybody in leadership has to define what their own version of success means. Mine were about people, process, compliance, quality, and I guess profitability at the end of the day, because I always, you know, believe, you know, no money, no mission when you're in healthcare. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things you do a great job in the book, as I was reading through, I was thinking, huh, it is interesting for people that are in what we'll call the public sector where there there's shareholders involved there's uh you know a lot of media you tell a great story about uh you know something that happened in 2009 i won't go into it with with your company and and the flag we won't go into that we'll let people um check that out but I, and 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 i'm not sure that people recognize all of the i'll call it the bosses that we have you know, shareholders, profitability, customers, all of those things. So uh, you do a good job of, of kind of laying that out. You know, one of the things as I was reading through the book, Ben, that I kept saying to myself, and, and if this is wrong or this wasn't what you were thinking, let me know. But it was almost like an autobiogra- 
autobiography leadership book. And because you do great on talking about some things about your family and your parents and a great story about your mother and and uh, and then also growing up and also your family, family vacations, things like that. Um, was that intentional <laughs> or is that the way it evolved? What was the uh, what was the thinking? Maybe this is kind of a long winded way of, uh, you know, why did you write the book or did it and did it morph into that as you were going through that process? I wouldn't say it morphed. I mean, it was really sort of my intention. In some ways, it was, Tim, a little bit cathartic for me to talk about things in writing that I'd really never discussed publicly with a whole lot of people. And, and the reason for the, the reason why I thought it was important to write the book I did, not because my life has been so particularly interesting. First of all, let's, let's take a start. I'm not a writer. I, I didn't, I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to go write books and be a book writer. I understand the cynical nature that people might say, Oh, here's just another ex-retired CEO writing another book to tell us about how to, you know, how to live our life. You know, what does he or she know? I was really trying to avoid all of those sort of classic pitfalls about book writing and about people not being really interested by trying to just be honest. You know, if I'm going to preach about honesty and transparency, I thought that doing it in writing would be a good way to do it. And the most important reason, Tim, why the book evolved into such a personal, I suppose, autobiographical, auto, that's easy to say, autobiographical yeah. way of, 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 of describing the things that I went, went through is because I wanted the individual reader, when they were reading each chapter, and you tell me if you did this or not, I wanted them to put themselves in the shoes that I was in and say, yeah, I did have a mother who, you know, was diagnosed with esophageal cancer and died three months later. And I know what that felt like. And I know the pain that that caused my family. And I know how it knocked me, knocked the wind out of my, out of my chest. And I, I don't know how I got back up off the mat and showed the resiliency I needed to show to go back to work and to be strong for my family. I imagine that, you know, when you think about cancer, there's not a listener out there that you have that hasn't been touched in some way or fashion by that. I wanted it to be personal, Tim, because not everybody has sat in the chair of being the CEO of a big institutional Fortune 500 company like you like like you talked about. And some of the stories I tell, you know, could be a little bit nebulous to some of the, you know, what, what did he go through? He had a hostile public takeover. I mean, what, what does that even mean? And so connecting the personal side of it, the way that I operated my life and the troubles and the travails and the successes that I've had individually I thought was like that sort of perfect connection to make it real for the reader to connect themselves to say, oh, OK, I see the business decisions he made. I'm not sure I understand all of those things, but they were pretty complex and interesting. But I can sure relate to the human side of it. And that in and of itself, I think, is what connects my idea of intentional disruption, not just to business, but to life and leadership as well. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it and I found myself fascinated. I love how you did a string string together of like PR uh, releases to kind of show the timelines and things like Cause I found myself at times going, wait, what year are we in? What happened? And then you would do a great job of just, here's the PR statements to show you all that was going on. And during that time. So, uh, anyway, great job on that. And then I did love how you wove in, uh, a lot of the personal things I think is very unique in leadership and business books that you were able to tie that in. So I think the reader uh, will enjoy that. I know I did. What did Ben learn about himself during the writing process? I've just written a novel and it's releasing here in a few months. And you obviously had to go through a writing process. I don't know if you had anyone that wrote with you or you did all the words yourself. But what did you learn about yourself during this process? Well, I, I wrote pen to paper. Uh, I wrote I wrote the book. I had, you know, lots of people who wanted uh, lots of lawyers and editors and, and, and copyright people, you know, lots of people who were who were super helpful in that in that regard. But but no, I mean, I, I took me about a year and a half to, to write it all out and get it retyped and send it to the editor and turn it into a book and move chapters around and come with the process. You know, what I learned about myself, I guess, Tim, along the way was a that I could be organized and disciplined enough in my thought process to put something like that uh, uh, in, in, in writing that be that I would say for a number of years, I've had people asking me about the idea of writing a book. And I truly believe it's not false humility that I had nothing particularly important and nothing really new to add. And I guess at the end of it, going back, I mean, the reader will ultimately have to decide, but you know, my own view was, yeah, there's, there's something here. There's a, there's a story to be told. There's a, there's a hook to this that I think can connect to other people that that is very common across across humanity, not just, you know, my own individual experiences. And I 
I've really enjoyed. I think the lesson that I've learned the most is I've, you know, one of the things I've been, I've, I've really enjoyed talking, talking with folks like you. And I've been on a, you know, I've been on a college tour, uh, really connecting with, with young college students. I've really enjoyed and realized the most how much of the human connection of what I wrote really is common to what others are feeling and thinking about. And I suppose at the end of the day, that's the thing that's, uh, that's been the best for me. I think, I think that's great because, you know, in all of our roles, regardless of what it is, but probably definitely in that CEO role, you can become somewhat in a bubble or isolated, even though I know you've got employees and interact and kind of not recognize all things going on in the world. And I do, there is a lot of uh, value to that. One, I want to, I want to ask one more question, I guess, maybe more general. No, it's a very specific situation you mentioned in the book, not general uh, before we begin wrapping up here, and you talked about a situation, I think you were in your late 20s, which is kind of fascinating to me, uh, where you were dealing with a lot of stress, you were probably a hard charger, you were probably making your way up the corporate ladder, I think you were in Atlanta at the time too, I think we were probably in Atlanta about the same time, oddly enough, I was doing consulting for Kaiser Permanente around that time, working with trying to help doctors and nurses get along, which Anyway, we won't go down that road, but um, but talk a little bit about that fascinates me because working with the leaders that I work with, Ben, the thing that I notice the most is how are we managing and dealing with the stress of just all that we do? And listen, I could push this down to a single mom that's just holding two jobs all the way up to the person sitting in the, you know, the highest office on the corner of, of a building. So stress is something that we're all dealing with. Talk a little bit about that. You addressed it in the book, but I think that everyone listening in deals with this to some extent. Help us out uh, to tell us how Ben deals with it, knowing that you're probably not perfect, but how, how are you working through that uh, stress that we all face? Um, I'm glad you asked the question. It's, it's to me, it's the underlying most important sort of fabric of, of what I've tried to write about. And I, I, I tried really, Tim, to, to weave in and out a multitude of stories around how I've thought about stress, anxiety, how I've dealt with, with mental fatigue, you know, throughout, throughout my life. And the, the story you told is exactly that. I think I was 27 years old, but I woke up in the middle of the night in a pool of sweat. I was in the, I was in the midst of an impossibly difficult job. And I literally thought I was having a heart attack and dying. I made my girlfriend at the time take me to the emergency room. And of course they sort of looked after doing all my vitals, thankfully looked and laughed and said, you know, are you a little anxious? Are you feeling like you're a little under stress? And I, but it felt real. It felt physical. It felt like it was happening. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the amazing thing about that incident, Tim, was I'm embarrassed to say it. It probably realistically took me another decade before I really realized what was happening in my life. And if I could talk to, and as I do talk to young folks, it really is. And actually, I think in 2022, we are much more aware of mental health and of making sure that we have the capacity to think about the need for taking a break, the need for doing the things that we need to have to have strong uh, mental health. I wish I would have recognized that early. The fact is I did recognize it at some point. And I recognized that if I didn't get my arms around it, that it was going to kill me or certainly not make me be effective as it was. My weight had gone up. My health had gone down. I just, you know, I wasn't, uh, my relationships weren't good. So I tackled it, Tim, the best way I could on a couple of different fronts. And, um, I think a lot of these you can do without having great CEO resources. And some I was fortunate, obviously, to be in a position where I had maybe, maybe more resources than others. The first thing is, is that I do believe that nutrition and fitness and mental health all is sort of tied into each other. I know that's not any, you know, particularly new ground that anybody's hearing about, but just getting started, taking that first 10 minute walk, taking that first 20 minute walk, putting down the sugar and the refined foods and the, all of the crap that we have a tendency as Americans to eat, the fast food, the whatever it is, and focusing on a little bit more of a healthy diet. I'm not telling anybody they got to go be plant-based or become vegans overnight. I'm just saying eat healthier food and start to exercise a few days a week, and you will find that it will have a dramatic effect on your mental health and on the clarity and the outlook of your life. And it took me a long time to figure that out, and I'll never look back now, Tim. I think it's really important. That's number one. Number two is you've got to have a support team in some way or fashion. And while I was fortunate to have a lot of different avenues to go to, uh, both both in terms of my own family and the support that I could get from them, some have 
more family support than others. Some that is an area of stress in their life or a personal coach. You know, I've had a personal coach now for more than 15 years. I talk to him once a quarter. Uh, we'll take walks around the park. We'll sit in my office. We'll go to coffee and I'll just talk about what I'm feeling and what's going on. And I find those to be very sort of cathartic sort of opportunities and then peer group opportunities. You know, I'm, I'm in an organization called YPO, which is young president's organization. And, and we have something in that group that's called our forum. It's eight, eight, eight men and women that will sit around in a very confidential manner. Uh, we'll meet once a month and we'll talk about things that we might not talk about to our wives or partners or spouses. And if you take all of those things combined, Tim, diet, exercise, mental awareness, support, you can kind of figure out how to navigate yourself through all of the difficult things that you're going to deal with because it gives you, and I use this word resiliency at the start of our discussion here, it gives you a stronger foundation from which to be resilient, which I will again come back to being one of the most important words any of your listeners, anybody working in leadership can think about, my kids, whoever it is that I talk to, life is not a straight line of progressions, Tim. And and we got to remember that it's a series of successes and failures along the way. And it's it sounds cliche, but it's those who can get knocked down, that can bounce back and keep moving forward, that wind up in the end being successful, not those that just go darting up the charts, thinking they're going to get from point A to point D without any, you know, without any scrapes along the way. Yeah, speaking to that, and I don't know if this is something that will add stress to you. I don't know if this will be a stressful question or a relaxing question. We're finishing up here with just a few questions, but uh, something just came to me. I'd love to know, where where do you see yourself a year or two from now? I mean, because I know you're in a transition, and um, and and you've also been a guy that has had a a domain that you've overseen for quite a while, quite a season in your life. Um, what's Ben look like 12 months from now, 24 months from now? And let's see how you're handling this stress and all, because that could be stressful for someone who's <laughs> intentional. Yeah. What does it look like for you? One yeah. of my last questions. We've got a couple more. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've realized some things that I that I know and some things that I still am trying to figure out. But but in the what I know category, I know that I want to work and be productive. You know, I, I am uh, – we weren't talking about ages, but I'm 51. I just turned 51 and, and feel like, you know, I've got still a lot of energy and a lot, a lot, a lot left to give. Uh, I'm not, you know, ready to go sit on the proverbial, proverbial beach, you know, and not, and not, not be productive in some form or fashion. So I want to work and I want to be productive and I like to work. And I'm a, as you said, a bit of a type A personality where, you know, idle thoughts and idle time isn't, isn't particularly helpful to me in that regard. I think that the, the key thing for me, Tim, is trying to figure out where does my energy, effort, experience play best in the future, both to make me happy, but also to be a good uh, functioning member of society? Likely continuing in healthcare. I mean, I think after 30 years of being in an industry, while it seems interesting to me to go into consumer goods or into this or into that, you know, healthcare is something that I know I've got some acumen in. I know lots and lots of different policymakers and strategic thinkers and people who are thinking about some of the things Tim, you and I were talking about earlier, how do we make things easier and better for the consumer? So I'd like to be active in that role. I don't know if that means, you know, having to go back and being the CEO of a company and sitting in that chair again or or serving in more of an advisory capacity or serving in a different way that, that capital flows, you know, whether it's private equity or others. But I'll find my path and navigate through there. And, you know, I would I would think that in the next year I'll I'll figure that out. Yeah, that's um, that's good. So where can people, uh, you know, one of the things that I loved you said earlier is that you're working with some younger people in college. I, I, I've kind of become more ministry minded as I get to the place that I'm at in life. And to me, that seemed like something that has great value. I don't know if it has financial value, profit, but it has great value for culture and society. So I applaud you for doing that because I think that there are stages in life where we need to turn around, look at generations behind us and say, here's some things that I did well. Here's some things I didn't do well. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. Ben, where can people find you and find the book and connect with you? Uh, we'll include it all in the notes and everything, but just go ahead and verbally tell us where they could find all your stuff and connect with you. Good. Thank you, Tim. Uh, I mean, the very easiest way is I've got a website. It's benbriar.com. That's B-R-E-I-E-R. Uh, the book's available everywhere. Books are available, right? Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, books a million, whatever. Uh, but go to the website. We talk a lot about, you know, kind of where I've been, where I'm going, what I'm doing. Uh, we mentioned some of the college tour stuff that I'm on. 
hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm sure you can find me uh, at Ben Breyer on LinkedIn. I'd say those two places are great. Okay, very good, and and I recommend people check all that out. Uh, we are Seek Go Create. Those are the three words we use to describe what we do here. And uh, I'm going to ask as my final question, you have one of those words to pick that resonates with you or means more to you right now over the other two, Seek Go or Create. Which one do you choose and why? And then I'll wrap up. Well, this is a, this this of all the questions you've asked, I, I'd say this could have been the hardest, but is the easiest for me. It's go. I mean, go, go, Tim, go. Um, and I think why is uh, in the way that I phrase the go and in the way that I've lived my life. I'm, I like to go. I like to do. I like to. I like to get after it. So I I I choose go, Tim. Yeah, thank you, Ben. I've enjoyed the conversation, and I do recommend recommend people go check out the book, and uh, we'll include notes and all of that. Uh, I and also one of the big favor for those listening in, share this episode. Uh, you know, we had a great conversation about healthcare and about leadership and stress, a lot of things that uh, I think would have value to friends, family, people you interact with. So just take a screenshot if you're listening on a podcast platform, if you're on YouTube or something like that. Just share this with other people. That's the number one way that people are exposed and interact with new content as far as podcasts go. So I appreciate you doing that. And once again, go check out all the notes that we have at SeekGoCreate.com with the episode. You can get all the resources, everything we mentioned. Find find Ben's book all there at SeekGoCreate.com. New episodes every Monday. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.